Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. And this is an episode in the Princeton University Press Ideas podcast. And today, I'm happy to say that we have Dorothy Sue Cobble on the show, and we'll be talking about her terrific book, For the Many, American Feminists and the Fight for Global Democratic Equality. It's out from Princeton University Press just this year, 2021. Welcome to the show, Dorothy. Thanks, Marshall. I'm happy to be here to talk with you. Thanks so much for inviting me. Absolutely. My pleasure. Could you begin the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself? Well, um, I'm a historian of 20th century political and intellectual history. And my research interests are really longstanding ones since my 20s. And they have to do with social movements, why they arise, how they sustain themselves, how they institutionalize their ideas. And over the last 30 years or so, I've written primarily about female-led and worker-led movements for social and economic justice. Um, I like to think that I'm not only gendering labor history, which was a kind of ubiquitous phrase among feminist labor historians since the 1990s, but also classing women's history. And I think I do that because I've always thought that working people of the past had a lot to teach us in the present um, about what their needs were. We need to listen to working people, um, but also how they crafted democratic movements and created inclusive social policy. Um, It's struck me for a long time, and I've written about this um, in the current book, but also in other books, that class as a category really often drops out of the stories we tell about the past. And that's, of course, ironic, since class structures in the U.S. are... inequality is is very extreme and class structures are, are very real, but we don't often pay attention to class experiences. Um, and so I think we need to listen to the particular vantage point of working people and particularly low-income women. I can say a little bit about how the concerns um, of the books that I've written go back to uh, growing up in a uh, working class family in Georgia in the 1950s. Um, And in some ways I do that because those concerns, concerns for social justice really came out of my family as well as uh, the Baptist church, as well as the civil rights movement. Uh, My father worked for the railroad. He was a locomotive engineer, Um, but he also was a a legislative lobbyist in the Georgia State Legislature and uh, fought for minimum wage in the 50s, um, as well as for worker rights more generally. And my mother, uh, I really learned quite different things from her in a way, uh, the value of education and the importance of the Democratic Party. Uh, My family, like a lot of working class families, 
they divided politically, especially after the 1980s. And my father voted Republican and my mother Democratic, even though she made me promise not to tell him. Um, and then, of course, the Southern Baptist Church uh, left its mark. Um, and I eventually uh, drifted away from the church and uh, made my way uh, to uh, the Quaker Church for a while and then to the Civil Rights Movement. Um, but I think I did bring with me uh, some of the values, at least those values kind of filtered through my mother's lens of, um, you know, what we could call social gospel Christianity, uh, the need to act in the world to solve people's problems. The uh, last thing I'll say about my background really is that I was shaped as well uh, by the 1960s and the movements of uh, the student movements of the day. Uh, I was caught up in the anti-war and the women's movement. Um, but I think like many of the women that I write about, I didn't feel particularly or fully comfortable in either the uh, male-led left movements of the day, um, in part that had to do with sort of a growing feminist consciousness, but also in the women's movements of the day that were primarily led by college-educated women and I thought didn't really pay enough attention to class diversity and class differences. Well, thank you for that. Um, terrific introduction. Could you talk to us a little bit about why you wrote For the Many? Why this particular book and its particular subject? It was a long time writing. <laughs> and I uh, think the reasons shifted somewhat um, over the decade. But I, um, some of those hopes I had for the book, certainly uh, the ones I had 10 years ago, uh, stayed with me. And I hope I've succeeded in fulfilling some of those aims. Like many university history faculty, I, of course, wanted to change the academic conversation and recast the way historians think and write about the past. And I can say a word about that in a minute. But I wanted to talk briefly about how I hope the book would speak to people outside the university, to those engaged in progressive movements for social change, and to those trying to reimagine social policy and workplace practices. The women that I write about in For the Many, and this is a book that covers the 20th century and uh, really looks at uh, generations of women over time. Um, it's a group I call Full Rights Feminists or Social Democratic Feminists. And I can say more about what I mean by that in a minute. But I found them inspiring um, because they, like us, faced uh, similar challenges and daunting challenges, and uh, they persevered in trying to change the world. They lived through times of horrific violence, 
And I was surprised by how much their lives were shaped by war. Uh, and I don't think that's given enough attention sometimes um, in by women's historians, not just what women did at uh domestically during wartime, but the way the violence of the war shaped people's worlds. Uh, They also lived through times of skyrocketing economic inequality, rising authoritarianism, and explosions of anger against those perceived as the other. Um, But as I said, they persevered. They left their comfort zones personally and politically and they built cross-class multiracial networks in the U.S. and abroad. And they actually succeeded in enacting significant, long-lasting change. At times, they sunk into depression and despaired, um, like we all do, but they continued onward. So I found them inspiring I also wanted to draw attention to their particular politics. Um, I admired the ends they sought and the methods they use. It's a political tradition that I labeled full rights feminism, and I wanted to make that more visible. Um, I wanted uh, to draw attention to their democratic and egalitarian ways of thinking and acting. For the Many is a big book, (laughs) Um, and it roams globally as well as covering um, a century. So it's synthetic in a way, but it's also built on the scholarship of uh, many, many people, as well as my own Uh, primary research. I travel quite a bit uh, to write the book. Um, But I ended up arguing that the women that I write about did share a politics. It was a tradition. They didn't all agree on everything, but there was a core of precepts that they shared. Um, In some ways, you know, I was trying to uh, counter what still dominates the field of political history, which is uh, men's politics. Um, We're familiar with uh, Hofstadter's book, um, his seminal book, The American Political Tradition and the Men Who Made It, uh, uh, written over 50 years ago. Um, And I took that as an example in a way of what to do, but also what not to do. Um, He did have as his task the tracing of an American political tradition, and I'm trying to do that as well. Uh, Yet the tradition I write about is women's politics and specifically women's democratic politics. Uh, So what is this tradition? Um, At the Heart of the book, I think, is the um, devotion of these women to a feminist vision, a vision of women's rights, but also of broader social change. Um, So we could think of them as, you know, early intersectional feminists. Um, 
And I think that's accurate. They wanted more than equality with men. They, they were aiming higher. This was a slogan from the 60s. Um, and they consistently sought to address the multiple inequalities that women faced. They uh, rejected the uh, National Woman's Party single-minded focus on sex inequality and believed that all women and men to thrive, you needed broad social and economic reform. You've anticipated some of my questions uh, in that marvelous response. I wonder if you could speak a little bit about positioning uh, the women you write about on the political spectrum. And I know it changes over time, but you use the expression full rights feminists. Where do they sit relative to, for example, socialists and I guess to one side or even communists further to that side and uh, other kind of traditional groups that lobbied for, let's just say, civil rights or full equality for women? I chose the label of full rights in part to distinguish them from the equal rights feminists. Um, And, you know, I think that so often the history of women is written in a way where the labels themselves actually point to who's a feminist and who's not. Um, So the equal rights feminists are always thought of as the primary tradition of feminism um, and their opponents are sometimes not seen as feminists at at all. And many of the women that I write about did, as I said, uh, objected to the focus on just an equal rights amendment. But I also wrote about them as full rights in a way to distinguish them from groups that simply pursued uh, a collection of rights that just focused on social and economic, but not political. Like the, um, I think this, it's clearest in the 1940s, Uh, with the pursuit of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, um, they and the four freedoms um, that were articulated uh, by Roosevelt and picked up by many of the women I write about in the 40s, they wanted intertwined rights. They wanted political rights and civil liberties as well as social and economic rights. And so to get back to your question, that really meant that at times uh, they objected to what they saw as a tradition that was linked to the left um, of people who espoused revolutionary violence. They were very clear in their methods that they were social democratic. and they uh, emphasized um, education and other kinds of means, nonviolent means for making social change. But they were also clear that 
we shouldn't conflate socialism with Soviet-style communism or state socialism. Um, at the same time, one of the issues I had to grapple with in the book is how the meaning of so many of the political labels that we use change over time. They're inadequate. They're used differently by different people. Um, so in the early 20th century, many of the women did call themselves socialists. Uh, Rose Schneiderman, for example, or Pauline Newman, um, certainly Margaret Dreyer Robbins, who was the uh, German-born uh, leader of the Women's Trade Union League for many years, thought of herself as a syndicalist socialist. Um, but after the Bolshevik Revolution, um, as Rose Schneiderman said, um, and she was uh, very much attacked uh, for her politics, um, she more identified with a social democratic tradition. And so this changes over time, and I can talk more specifically about the different moments. Um, certainly, by the time the New Deal arrives, um, people feel more comfortable talking about identifying with a broad egalitarian liberal tradition. Um, there's a new liberalism, John Dewey <laughs> argued in the 30s, and I agree. And it's important, I think, that we realize that uh, you know liberalism changes over time just like socialism. I don't know if that's... Um, yeah, no, that's perfect. That's not that's, enough of, of what you need to know. Yeah, that's perfect. That, 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 is, that, that is perfect. And I would associate myself with what you said about these terms, having different valences at different times. Um, being a socialist in one era, meant a, a very different thing than being a socialist in another era, um, as we all know. Let, let's jump right into the chronology itself and, and into the substantive chapters of the books. Um, you begin by talking about the International Women's Trade Union, I guess, which was founded in 1903. Can you talk a little bit about uh, them and why did you start there? Um, I chose them because they were the largest uh, working women's uh, organization of the era. And it uh, was important for me to have a thread that I could carry forward through the book. And one of the threads I grabbed hold to um, was to think about uh, working women's movements, um, both in the U.S. and abroad, and to follow, at least at the beginning, um, some of the initiatives of the Women's Trade Union League uh, because of their size and their influence, um, both domestically um, and internationally. Um, they had very important allies in the early 20th century, uh, some of which I knew more about, the National Consumers League, um, from the work of uh, Landon Stores and uh, Kitty Sklar. Uh, but I came to see, as I wrote the book, the importance of their alliance uh, with the um, YWCA 
and the way in which that huge organization and their transformation in the early 20th century really helped boost uh, working women's activism. Um, It was those groups that pushed forward, I think, the left wing of social feminism. Um, Probably most of your listeners uh, know the big picture of the divisions between what have been called social feminists and equal rights feminists that really um, carry forward all through the 20th century. Um, But I'm really channeling the left wing of social feminism and the emphasis on economic justice. Um, These women were also involved in racial justice. Uh, Leonora O'Reilly, who Laura Vatnick has written about, I didn't know as much about her, but she becomes an important figure in the book. Um, But at the same time, Uh, The movement is not integrated until the 20s and the 30s, um, and there's a kind of parallel um, activism among African-American women that I say, um, I uh, begin talking about that history a bit in the early part of the book, and then it becomes more important as the book goes on. I should say that one of the things that emerges in the book really has to do with how when you make economic justice issues central and you follow the lives of low-income and immigrant women and women of color, there are different moments that emerge as pivotal in the history Um, We've heard a lot about 1920 and the passage of the 19th Amendment. Um, We also know by now that uh, that year certainly does not mark uh, political suffrage for all women. Uh, African-American women don't really fully get the vote. Um, until the 60s, but other women um, are disenfranchised as well um, for all kinds of reasons. Um, But in the story I tell, 1919 and the World War I era emerges as really crucial um, for the rise of social justice internationalism, Um, and the emergence of a working-class women's movement. And the Women's Trade Union League, I think, was um, absolutely crucial to this. Um, They uh, traveled uh, to Versailles, uh, Roche Schneiderman and Mary Anderson, and I can say more about both of those women. They forged ties with uh, the key trade union women uh, of their day in France and Britain. Um, I write about Margaret uh, Bonfield, who uh, became the first woman in the British cabinet in the 20s. 
but also French labor feminists like Jean Bouvier. Um, in 1919, it's important as well, um, I found, to look east and write about women like Tanaka Taka in Japan. Um, the Women's Trade Union League was able to forge ties uh, to help construct uh, the first international organization of working women, the International Federation of Working Women. Um, at the same time, in part uh, because of the limitations of the U.S. Uh, administration and Wilson's own vision of internationalism, and the refusal of the U.S. to join the League and to participate um, in international organizations. The Women's Trade Union League women had to step aside um, and sort of root from the sidelines as their allies in Europe and Japan really had an impact on the International Labor Organization and the first set of international labor standards. Um, I wondered if we could move on um, to the 1930s, and I have particular interest in this. Uh, Of course, the 1930s witnessed a huge shift in the Democratic Party toward a more European-style social democracy, and this culminates, as you say, in the for freedom speech, which I think Roosevelt gave in 41. Um, these were also boon years for international socialism, usually led by the Soviet Union, but not exclusively. I wonder how the full rights feminists interacted with or responded to the popular front and these other efforts by international socialists to help, I think I might say, the cause. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I think we need to go back a bit uh, to the 1920s uh, to understand their relation to um, international socialism and particularly the European-based organizations that were uh, led by socialists and social democrats. Um, their ties with European women um, were primarily with ties with socialist and social democratic women. Um, But because the labor movement in the U.S. was uninterested in transnational ties uh, with socialists, let alone um, with communists, um, Gompers was... Uh, hostile in many ways um, to the international that was based in Amsterdam, which was the social democratic international, and refused to join. Um, And that made it very difficult for the women that I write about to maintain formal ties uh, with uh, the trade union movement, which is really Uh, where their connections with uh, socialists and social democratic um, activists happened most frequently. Um, 
moving into the 1930s, the social democratic movements uh, did um, were not as strong as they had been. Uh, the movements that were more closely aligned uh, with Moscow and with the international communist movements uh, began to grow both in the U.S. Um, and internationally. Uh, the Women's Trade Union League women and uh, the full rights feminists I write about um, moved into the Democratic Party um, and they, like most Americans, by 1936, uh, were saw the uh, Democratic Party as the vehicle by which they could achieve their ends, of, uh, many of which uh, were quite similar to the ends of people who identified as socialists or communists. And that's one of the reasons we have the popular front period of the late 30s. Uh, There was an agreement on the need to oppose fascism. There was an agreement on the need to regulate capital. There was an agreement on the need for a strong central state and for countervailing um, powers. Uh, One of the funny quotes I came across um, in the archives is from Mary Anderson, uh, who had been a labor organizer before the war and active in the Women's Trade Union League and then becomes a head of the U.S. Women's Bureau for 20 years or so. She's a major figure in all this. And she's trying to convince Margaret uh, Dreyer Robbins to vote for Roosevelt Um, And she says, you know, yes, it sounds like socialism, but if it's socialism, so be it. It's what we need. Um, So many people thought of of Roosevelt in that way. Um, I'm wondering uh, how the full rights feminists fared uh, in the late war years and in the uh, early post-war years. And I'm thinking particularly about the efforts to refashion the International Labor Organization and the Philadelphia Declaration that you write about. Um, These were were pretty good years because internationalism was kind of back in favor, at least as long as Roosevelt was in charge. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes. Um, I should probably preface this by saying a little more about the International Labor Organization. Um, There's been a real outpouring of scholarship on the ILO recently, uh, uh, beginning with uh, Sandrine Cott and Dan Mao, but other people. Um, But oddly, uh, much of the writing on international organizations, uh, this is among women's historians as well as other historians, Um, has sort of set the labor organizations to the side. Uh, There's not much attention to the ILO or, say, not as much attention, certainly, as to the UN 
um, and some of the agencies within that, like the Commission on the Status of Women. Um, and I think even more strikingly, there's not much attention uh, to what happens in the labor movements. Um, and that's extraordinary because the international labor movements um, in the post-war period uh, represented millions of people, and I would argue they're very important um, NGOs. So the women that I write about um, paid attention to the ILO, um, and they really hoped that through the ILO uh, they could achieve many of their ends um, in terms of many of their ends what I call a women's new deal for the world um, were similar to what they wanted domestically. They wanted regulated economies. They wanted democratic nation states that invested in social welfare. Uh, They believed that peace and social security should be based on equality among nations um, they hope to raise what I call the standard of living worldwide through labor regulations. Um, so they fought to preserve the ILO. Um, during the war, Frances Perkins and Frieda Miller, um, who, had, uh, who by 1944 becomes head of the um, U.S. Women's Bureau, they were instrumental um, in fighting not just to preserve the ILO, but in transforming it um, and pushing for it to be um, an organization that thought of workers more broadly, not just waged workers, but all workers, um, that took up social issues um, and concerns, not just labor standards. So they continued to push for things like the maternity legislation. Um, And I think one thing that's important here, um, and this is getting back to this issue of how when you look at labor organizations and economic justice struggles, you see different turning points. 1944, Um, and the Philadelphia Declaration of Human Rights is a crucial moment for them, um, as well as, of course, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights um, in 1948. Um, And it's that agenda of intertwined rights that they took forward um, into the 50s and 60s, I think, There were major advances there, which I can talk about, that often get missed, um, but also laid the basis for the movements of the 21st century. It's interesting and and somewhat ironic that uh, after having made this progress in the uh, New Deal era and during the war, that uh, the full rights feminist rug smack dab into um, the second Red Scare, which was brought on by the Cold War. I'm, I'm wondering how they adapted to this 
new environment in the United States and internationally. I'm thinking about the 1950s and very early 60s here. The Red Scare is certainly real. Um, And as we know uh, from many works, um, it wasn't just uh, people who had been affiliated with the Communist Party or had been part of the Popular Front movement. They were attacked. Um, It was people like Dorothy Kenyon, um, who was very clearly um, someone who opposed uh, the um, expansion of the Soviet Union and spoke out against um, some of the ideas that uh, she saw being um, promoted uh, by the Soviet women Um, In the UN, uh, she was uh, appointed by Truman to the Commission on the Status of Women. Um, And uh, that organization in the 40s and 50s was really hampered by uh, Cold War struggles. And she was very much a part of that and saw herself... um, uh, as an anti-communist, but she becomes one of the first targets of McCarthy. Um, so there are those kinds of ironies. Um, at the same time, one of the things I've emphasized in, in this book and in earlier books is that there's a lull um, and a backtracking for some years um, and the assault of conservatives on the social democratic movements is real, Um, but those movements continue. Um, And internationally, uh, they actually are very robust uh, right until the mid-50s. So one of the things I write about is the advances um, in the ILO, um, what are called the equality conventions of the 1950s. There's a contrast, really, uh, between what's going on in the UN, and and many people have said the 50s are uh, a decade of uh, sort of stall Uh, for some of the equality agenda in the UN, but not so the ILO. And I guess the most important example there is the passage of Convention um, 100, the Equal uh, Pay Convention um, that becomes so influential in really sparking an equal pay movement around the world Uh, that picks up speed in the late 50s and 60s and continues into the present. Um, Interestingly, these things seem to come in waves and the thaw in the Soviet Union and the civil rights era in the United States breathed new life into the left. And it was called the new left at the time, SDS and such. How did 
the full rights feminists respond to and I suppose profit from this uh, new interest in left wing politics? I I think of the '60s as a real pivot point in in my story for a number of reasons. Um, the social democratic heyday is really from the '30s to the '60s, and I can talk a bit about how. Um, women like Esther Peterson, who's really key to the story in the 60s, um, and other in, other women in her network responded to what I think of as the new feminism of the late 60s. But I, I want to be clear that the feminism of the 60s is different from the later feminism that arose, um, but it is just as radical, yet in different ways. Um, I came across something in the paper recently, uh, which just reminded me of how deep this idea is of how feminism is reborn uh, with the boomer generation uh, in the late 60s and the women before that. Um, are sort of benighted and didn't really understand uh, that women face disadvantages and that those disadvantages needed to be addressed. I don't think that's accurate. Um, the, the piece I ran across uh, talked about the president's commission on the status of women in, in quite a wrongheaded way. Uh, seeing it as something that um, President Kennedy started and then women like Esther Peterson, they said, were radicalized by it. Um, In fact, Esther Peterson and many of the women in her network uh, had been pushing for a commission since the 40s Um, They were influenced by Truman's Civil Rights uh, Commission, but also by the women's status debate um, in the UN. And once um, Kennedy was in office, Peterson worked with Arthur Goldberg, um, who she knew from the labor movement, who was in the administration and other people to convince Kennedy Uh, to set up a commission. It was the first federal commission. Um, Again, I read something in the Times about how the first federal commission uh, on women uh, happened in the 90s during the Clinton era, uh, but actually it's in the 60s. And this commission um, did not support the ERA, and that's, again, what's often said about it, and then people move on. Um, But we're coming to see it in a different light, Um, particularly with the new work on Polly Murray, um, who was very crucial in the commission. We understand that these women were feminists. They just believed that... uh, the 14th Amendment Equal Protection Strategy uh, would 
um, be a better vehicle than the single issue constitutional amendment of the ERA. Um, But again, the commission is not just about the rights of women narrowly defined um, as an end to uh, inequalities between men and women, um, but how to address inequalities among women uh, by class, by race, um, how you address family discrimination. Um, they believe that women should have the right to employment, but they also wanted policies like childcare and paid maternity leave um, and basic income, uh, what we would think of now as uh, children's allowance because of Biden's new proposals, um, that gave women and men uh, more of a choice of where to spend their time, either in the family um, or in the market. Um, once women's liberation gets underway, Um, and there's a new feminism uh, epitomized by the National Organization of Women, Uh, the women I write about were no longer really on the forefront of the women's movement. Um, Esther Peterson uh, believes that it's important that we move away from this debate over the ERA. She's Uh, believes there are other issues that need addressing. She becomes more active in consumer rights, um, and uh, she ends up in the Carter administration for a while trying to um, push for the consumer rights bills of the late 70s that are uh, shot down uh, by conservatives. She ends her a long, long career in her 90s um, working for the UN for international consumer rights. Um, She changes her view about the new feminism um, and does change some of her views that she held earlier um, as she ages. Um, But she continues to believe that the women's movement Um, needs to spend more time thinking about the needs of low-income women and less time thinking about the needs of career women, that they need to think about the ways in which the jobs that women have held need to be revalued and upgraded uh, rather than thinking about how we can just help women move into the jobs that men have had. Um, So there's, um, I think, something we can learn both from the older (laughs) feminism of the 30s to the 60s that I write about, as well as the new feminism um, that emerges in the late 60s and 70s. I wonder if you could bring the story to the present and if you could talk a little bit about full rights feminists today, uh, who are they and if they, if they exist and what, uh, what are they doing? (laughs) (laughs) Well, the end of the book, um, moves through, um, 
takes the story for the last uh, half century uh, from the 1970s to the present. And one of the things that uh, is clear is that uh, U.S. women are no longer um, in in the lead uh, in terms of the global women's movement. Um, they're at odds in many ways uh, to many of the most influential women uh, internationalists, uh, in part because of the dominance of U.S. capital um, and the ways in which many of the movements that arise arise in opposition uh, to uh, U.S. empire. Um, But by the 90s and the turn of the century, uh, turn of the 20th century into the 21st century, you do see uh, new movements emerge in the U.S. that are inspired by what is going on outside the U.S., um, as well as a new generation that's coming uh, to the fore. Um, I spent quite a bit of time writing about some of the new global working women's movements outside the U.S., um, particularly uh, groups in India, um, like uh, SEVA, the Self-Employed Women's Association, which is one of the largest uh, trade unions or working persons organizations in the world, or millions of women, and the ways in which those new global movements um, have pioneered new ways of organizing that have come back into the labor movement in the U.S. and helped to revitalize it. One of the themes of the book is how uh, U.S. activists, particularly on the left, um, have been revitalized and have learned from and have needed ties uh, with activists outside the U.S. And we see that um, in the present day. I think there's a lot that's been written now about the feminization of the Democratic Party. Um, We know that uh, 52% of Biden's appointments have been women. And so there's this transformation at the top. Um, At the same time, there's really a growing uh, grassroots movements that are female-led. And I think it's that combination of energy at the top and at the bottom or at the grassroots that can be so powerful. I think that's what we saw in the 1930s uh, that allowed uh, for some really fundamental changes, I think, changes that weren't enough but were very real and significant. And I think we're seeing that in the present day. Well, Dorothy, thank you so much. We've taken up a lot of your time. I wondered if you might answer our traditional final question on the New Books Network, and that is, what are you working on now? 
Well, I'm finally getting back to a project that I promised uh, the new press some time ago. I'm, I'm very excited about it. Um, it's a series of essays on what I think um, of as subversive ideas uh, that were crucial uh, to the U.S. labor movement. And, you know, we don't often associate the uh, U.S. labor movement uh, with creative, um, innovative <laughs> thinking. Um, and so we shouldn't read the present day traditional labor movement backward. Um, I have found much to be inspired by, um, by the older struggles of the labor movement. Uh, there's a chapter on the long movement for shorter hours. That was the most important demand of the labor movement in the 19th century. But I show how it didn't stop in the 20th century. It just transformed from a shorter hour movement to a shorter work week, shorter year, shorter work life. And I think time politics is obviously very relevant today since we're one of the industrialized nations that um, have the longest hours and overwork is really endemic. I also write about and hope to write more about the bread and roses labor tradition um, that appears in uh, the For the Many book. Um, it's a phrase that I associate with Rose Schneiderman from 1911, um, but that's a very important tradition um, that's broad and long, and we can carry that right into the present day as well. Well, thank you very much for that. Let me tell our listeners that we've been talking to Dorothy Sue Cobble about her terrific book, For the Many, American Feminists and the Fight for Global Democratic Equality. It's just out from Princeton University Press, so go buy a copy. Um, Dorothy, thanks so much for being on the show. Thank you, Marshall, for having me. Absolutely. My pleasure.